Hey, uh, open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'll give you a minute. When you're there, say, you know it. All right, here we go. First Timothy chapter six, we're diving right in. Verse three, we, we, we ended with verse two last week. We start with verse three this week. Paul says, if anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. If you haven't figured this out yet, let me just say, you know there's false teachings, right? I mean, we're week 12 of this study, and and I don't know if you've picked up on this, but one of the big, mega, ultra-huge themes that, that Paul is going after is false teachers. It was an issue in Ephesus, it's an issue at UNT, an issue at TWU, an issue in Denton, at NCTC, everywhere. There are false teachers. You cannot believe everything that you hear Just because it sounds good, just because the person talking to you looks clean cut or is dressed nice or has an eloquent speech, or even just because they use the Bible, just because they say Jesus when they talk, doesn't mean that it's true. Uh, Sometimes I feel like the way false teachers work in using the Bible against us is it's those movies or those TV shows where this villain busts into this house uh, to rob some old lady and he's holding a gun and the old lady freaks out, takes a lamp and just knocks him upside the head. It knocks him out for a second. The gun goes flying. He falls to the ground and the old lady, she goes and grabs the gun and she's never held a gun before and she's really scared because there's this villain in her house and, and she's never shot a gun, killed anybody. So she's like shaking as she's holding it. And right about the time she gets appointed at the villain, the villain begins to wake up and he gets up and what does he do? He starts to talk her down. Oh, come on, I, I wasn't gonna do anything. I, I wasn't gonna hurt you. Uh, come on, you're, you, you, you don't have it in you to shoot me. I mean, don't, you don't wanna hurt somebody, come on. And as he's doing that, he, he scoots closer and he scoots closer and closer and eventually he gets close enough where he just quickly grabs that gun and, and takes it and points it back at her. And the Bible shows us that, that Satan, he does that with our weapon. He grabs it out of our hand and he points it back at us. You see it in the temptation of Jesus. Uh, Satan uses God's word against Jesus. So just because they use the Bible, just because they say the name of Jesus doesn't mean that it's truth. And some of you right now are being slowly, in some cases, quickly lured away. And those of you who think you're not susceptible to being lured away, you are the most susceptible to being lured away. It's like fishing. Uh, you don't ever hear stories where somebody says, dude, I caught this massively huge 10-pound bass, and his buddy's like, no way. What were you fishing with? And he's like, oh, I was fishing with, a, I actually tied a, tied a Barbie doll to the end of my line, threw it in there, and the fish you know, just munched on it, and I caught this 10-pound bass. You don't ever hear stories like that. Fish aren't that dumb. Catfish probably would eat a Barbie doll. Maybe not a female Barbie, Ken. He's got more meat on him. But, but fish aren't that dumb. If you're gonna catch a fish, you have to throw a lure in the water that actually looks like what their natural, normal diet is. The only difference is it, it, it's, it's not the real thing. It looks the real thing, but it's not the real thing. And on the inside, there's this, there's this barbed hook hidden. And so when they bite down on it, they, the, the fisherman hooks that line and it grabs them by the cheek and they slowly or sometimes quickly begin to reel them in. You cannot believe everything that you hear. 
If you haven't gotten that, get it this week. You cannot believe everything that you hear. Verse three, he says, if anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. There's a key word in there, the word sound. The word sound in Greek is where we get the word hygiene from. Uh, every year at this church, and this is true in a lot of companies and businesses, there's an annual review of, of each of the employees, of each of the workers. And so uh, not too long ago, I had my annual review with my boss, who's Dr. Jeff. And so I go into his office, and he has this worksheet that he does for everybody. Uh, he kind of works through, and he grades us on some things. And it's, you know, it's nothing like super intense, uh, but it's just a form of accountability. It's an opportunity for him to give me some feedback. It's an opportunity for uh, me to give him some feedback. And when I looked at the sheet that he had graded me on, uh, I, I, I graded lowest on personal appearance and hygiene. <laughs> and I saw that and I'm like, what? I mean, I, I know I don't use deodorant, but I didn't think I smelled bad. Like if I smelled bad, I wish somebody would have told me, you know? And I mean, I, I brush my teeth once a week. So I mean, yeah, what's the big deal? I'm, I'm kidding. I do it at least twice a week. But so uh, the reason I grade so low is because I'm like out of dress code every day. But if you had, if you had B.O., if you smelled bad, if you had something in your teeth, or you had a little ketchup stain or a mustard stain, whichever mustard ketchup person you are on your cheek after eating a burger, wouldn't you want somebody to say something to you? I mean, it might be embarrassing at first, it might hurt your feelings at first, but at least you're only embarrassed in front of one or two people as opposed to walking around all day long. I mean, if, if you had your fly down, if your zipper was down, wouldn't you want somebody to say something to you about it? Instead of getting up on stage and you're standing in front of a couple hundred people with your fly down, well, unfortunately, you know, in situations like that, people, people are scared sometimes to say something because they don't want to hurt your feelings or they don't want to embarrass you or they don't want you to be mad at them. And, and unfortunately, sometimes pastors and teachers operate this way. They're unwilling to call you out on certain things or say certain things to you because they don't want to embarrass you. They don't want to hurt your feelings so that you never come back again. They don't want, you make, want to make you mad at them. Well, tonight, let me take one for the team. So many of you have terrible doctrinal and theological hygiene. Your doctrine and your theology stinks. Your theological zipper is down. And like he says, he says, you don't agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and the godly teaching. And here's why. You read further, verse 4, he says, because he or because you or because we are conceited. Good doctrinal hygiene begins with humility. Good theological hygiene begins with humility. It takes a conceited person to say that what I want to hear is more important than what I need to hear. It takes a conceited person to say that what I want to hear is more important than what God wants to tell me. Man, forget what you, forget what I want to hear. It's about what we need to hear. It's about what he's trying to tell us in his word. And more often than not, we try to get his word to submit to us. Humility and submissiveness, they're synonyms. And, and instead of us allowing God's word to speak into us, oftentimes we try to speak into his word. And we read it as if it's an open conversation between us and God. Like he's saying, hey, let me tell you some things that I'm thinking, and oh, what do you think? Let's, let's, let's talk about this. We'll come to a conclusion together. Good doctrinal hygiene, good theological hygiene begins with humility. It begins with submission to God through his word. How do you know that what you believe is true? Do you answer that question with, well, because that's what I think is true. 
or that's what I feel is true, or that's what you, Austin, told me is true. How do you know that what I'm telling you is true? How do you know that what these people your whole 20 years, 22 years of your life have been telling you is true? Acts chapter 17, verse 11 says, Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying was true. They examined the scriptures. Everything they heard taught about Jesus, about the Bible, they took it, and then they took God's word, and they held them next to each other and compared them. They tested what they were told with God's word. They were humble, and they were submissive to God's word. You need to be a Berean. You need to examine the scriptures. You need to be humble and submit to God's word. Good doctrine, good theological hygiene begins with humility. But then you read further and and into verse five, he says, okay, so these false teachers, a lot of them think that godliness is a means uh, to financial gain. And let me just say two quick things about that. First is this, if you hear someone teaching and at the center of their teaching, it's not Jesus. At the center of their teaching, it's a phrase like send me money. And at the bottom of the screen, it has a little address for you to send money to. Uh, They're foolish. Don't send them money. You sending them money is about as foolish as you sending money to the prince of the deposed king in Nigeria who happened to email you because he needs money to get a jet to Egypt where his deposed king dad supposedly hid $35 million that he's going to share with you later. It's foolish. Don't share money with those people. Second thing is pursuing Jesus is not a means to financial, material, or physical prosperity. If you hear anybody teach and at the center of their teaching it's not Jesus, instead it's phrases like, you'll be healthier. God will fill your gas tank or you'll get that promotion at work that you've been wanting for a long time. They're full of it. Godliness is godliness because God, Jesus, is at the center of it. And when you pursue godliness, you're not guaranteed prosperity, you are guaranteed Jesus. Go to verse six. Verse six, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. You know what that means? Godliness with contentment is is great gain. That means when you pursue godliness, you get Jesus. Godliness with contentment is being happy not with what you get, not with what you get, but with who you get. And you get Jesus. Uh, Anybody ever get those uh, Christmas cards or birthday cards from your grandparents? Anybody? Okay, I, my, my, all my grandparents are dead. My parents got started late, so forget them. But, but you, get, you, get, uh, you get Christmas cards, birthday cards from your grandparents, right? And I don't know about you, but in all, the, in all the cards that I got from my grandparents, they always had something else in there. What do they almost always have? They always got some, they always got some dough. They always got some money in there. And so for me, uh, every time I opened those cards, it got to a point where I was looking for the money. I didn't care about the card. So like eight years old, I'd already figured out at that point that there's a $20 bill or a $10 bill coming with this card. So I opened the card, I go straight for the cash, throw the card on the ground and get back to whatever else I was doing once I got the dough. But it gets to a point where you're expecting that, right? And, and what's the downfall of, of grandparents? They're kind of old, the brains are failing, and so every once in a while, they might forget to uh, put some money in the card, right? So you get the card. They meant to put money in it, but they forgot. So you open the card up, and you're looking for the money, and there's no money. You're like, man, that's bull. What is up with this? And you're almost tempted to call grandpa or grandma and say, hey, you forgot to put money in my card. Can you send another card? <laughs> Godliness with contentment is being happy with what you get, not with what you get, but with who you get. And godliness with contentment is being happy with who you get, and that is Jesus. And we would be fools We would be fools to not be content with that. You look at verse seven. Verse seven, he says, 
For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. John Piper, he says, there are no U-Hauls behind, uh, behind hearses. Some of you might need two or three U-Hauls if there were U-Hauls behind hearses. We came into the world with nothing. We're gonna leave the world with nothing. So we might as well not put our hope in the stuff that we can't keep. Jim Elliott, he said this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I don't know if you know who Jim Elliott is. Jim Elliott was a, um, a missionary to Ecuador in the 1950s. And before being a missionary to Ecuador, he was in school at Moody College up in Chicago. And everybody was telling Jim Elliott, dude, you have a huge future ahead of you. He was one of those guys, he would get up in front of people and he could just grab their attention. He had the, he had the, he had the ability to lead. He was very well spoken. He was smart, brilliant, academic dude. That's a tough school up there. He had family, he had friends, but he left all of that to go to Ecuador and become a missionary to what at the time was known as one of the most savage tribes in the world, the Alka Indians. And you know what happened to Jim Elliott? After a few years of living there, he died. He was killed by the people he was a missionary to, all for the sake of getting them the gospel. And eventually his wife would go back in later and that tribe would come to know Jesus. But that dude was content with who he had and he had Jesus. Forget all the other stuff that he had in the States. And so I wanna start off just by giving you three reasons that you can be content with Jesus. Three reasons that you can be content with godliness. And here they are. When you pursue godliness, when you pursue Jesus, you get three things. You get something that lasts, you get something that matters, and you get something that's custom fit. And let me explain all three of those. You get something that lasts. You cannot lose Jesus because Jesus will not lose you. We seek contentment in a lot of things. Uh, a lot of times we seek contentment out of hopefully relationships that will last forever. We seek contentment out of material things that we hope last forever, like the iPad or your car. You hope it lasts forever. We seek contentment out of pets that we hope last forever. I've got a miniature poodle. His name's Lloyd Harry Christmas Wadlow, and that fool is not going to last forever. He's 12 years old. He's getting blind. He's going deaf. And the conversation has kind of begun in my family of, you know, this is not going to last forever. We're going to have to put him down eventually. Uh, Sarah Roberts, she has, a, she has a little dog. His name's uh, Jack, second coolest dog in the world next to Lloyd Harry. And... Uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to pick on somebody else's dog, but Jack's not gonna last forever. He's either gonna run away, <laughs> he's either gonna run away, he's gonna get hit by a car, or he's gonna die in old age. Jack is not gonna last forever. I'm not trying to be morbid, I'm just trying to be truthful. Romans 8, 38 through 39 says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you pursue godliness, you get Jesus. And in getting Jesus, you get something that lasts forever. Secondly, you get something that, that is meaningful. Uh, guys, I'm gonna give you just a very important tip here. Never on an important day like Christmas or her birthday or Valentine's Day get your girlfriend a gift card. They don't want a gift card. Your girlfriend wants to know that you care about them. And there's two ways that you show you care about them. One, you show you care by caring enough to spend money on them. And two, you show you care by caring enough to spend time and energy and thought on them. Okay, now these girls will all tell you, no, I don't want something expensive. They're lying because when they want an engagement ring, they want a good engagement ring. Secondly though, they want something that you put a lot of time, thought, and energy into. And when you pursue godliness, you get Jesus. And when you get Jesus, you get something that's meaningful because nothing costs more than life. 
And there is nothing in the world that is, that is a better expression of love and sentiment and romance than giving up a life, than God sending his most prized possession, Jesus, ultimately himself, to come show his love, his grace, and mercy for you. John three sixteen for God so loved you that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. Now, guys are completely different. We don't care about the, the, the romance, the sentiment, the, the expensiveness. We want something practical. So for Christmas, get us a stinking drill. Get us some cleats. You can get us a gift card if it's to Buffalo Wild Wings so we can go hang with our buddies. We want something practical. And when you pursue godliness, when you pursue Jesus, you get something meaningful. In this case, meaningful is no gift was ever more practical than Jesus. Because apart from Jesus, we all die. And we all need Jesus, practical. So when you pursue godliness, you get Jesus. And in Jesus, you get something that lasts and something that's meaningful. And thirdly, you get something that is custom fit. He's the perfect fit for our souls. My, uh, my roommate in college, his name's Chad. Uh, he got married a couple years ago. And I, of course, I was a groomsman in his, in his wedding. And like six months before, I went to Men's Warehouse, just like I was supposed to, to get fitted for my tuxedo, get up to Northwest Arkansas to pick up my tuxedo the day of the wedding. And uh, I don't know where they got the measurements from. My jacket looked like it had come from one of Santa Claus helpers. Uh, it, it came to about right here on me and, and down to, it was more like a vest, really. And then my pants, it was like MC Hammer's pants from 1991 because, I mean, these massive parachute pants, literally after pinning them up, I still had to walk around the whole wedding, even up on stage, holding my pants like this. And then because they were so flappy, the, the reception was outside and windy. So every time the gust of wind blew, my pants just <laughs> kind of did that. But all of our lives, we're, we're trying, we, we try on these different hats. We try on these different identities. I want to be a basketball player. I want to be a nurse. I want to be a doctor. I want to be this. I want to be a fireman. I want to be uh, in the Navy. I want to be this. I want to be that. We put our identity in these different things. But the reality is all of us are born with this, this massive gap in our heart, this Jesus-sized gap in our heart that only he can fill. And it's custom fit. He is custom fit for us. So when we pursue godliness, we get Jesus. And in Jesus, we get something that lasts. In Jesus, we get something that's meaningful. And in Jesus, we get something that's custom fit. So Paul says, being content with Jesus is great gain. And in verse eight, he goes on, he says, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Man, if you got Jesus and you got food and you got clothes to wear, you got all you need. Physically, you need food. Legally, you need clothes. <laughs> I mean, a brother's got to eat to live, and you can't be walking around with no pants on unless you're planning on starting a prison ministry really, really soon. <laughs> but you listen to what prosperity gospel teachers say. And one of their go-to passages of Scripture is Philippians 4.13. What does Philippians 4.13 say? I can do everything through him who strengthens me. And here's their interpretation of that. If you believe in Jesus, then you can be, do, and have whatever you want. But there's something interesting about these uh, prosperity gospel teachers. You will never hear them quote or read the two verses before that verse in Philippians 4. Philippians 4, 11 and 12 say this, for I have learned, Paul says, to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then he says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Paul wrote this from a hole in the ground. 
He wrote this from a prison cell. He was enchained as he wrote this, and he was writing to a people who were facing heavy persecution. And even though they didn't have much, they were giving away the stuff that they had like crazy, all for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. The message of Philippians 4.13 and the message of 1 Timothy 6 is not the secret to being, doing, and having whatever you want is Jesus. The message of these texts is the secret, to, the secret to being content no matter what you have is Jesus. And then you look at verse nine. Verse nine, Paul says, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I had a friend in college. I'm not going to name her name for the sake of not humiliating her. But I had a friend in college who was very, from a very well-to-do family. And in high school, <laughs> she, uh, on, her, on her 16th birthday, she got a brand new car. Okay, Now, I would have been cool with like a used car, but she got a brand new car. I would have been cool with anything that had wheels and moved. Uh, she, got a, she got a brand new car, and, and after getting this brand new car, pretty soon after that, she got in a lot of trouble, and so her parents gave her a punishment car. Now, I would have been cool with a punishment car, uh, but she got this punishment car, and she didn't like her punishment car. Well, she had a friend uh, with a prosthetic leg, and uh, her friend with this prosthetic leg had just gotten a replacement for this prosthetic leg, and so her friend's idea was, well, if you don't like your punishment car, let's take your punishment car up to the top of this hill in northwest Arkansas and point it down the hill. We'll take my old prosthetic leg. We'll jam it between the seat and the gas pedal, put it in drive and send it down the hill. And then they're going to have to give you your old car back. So uh, that's what they did. And uh, she got her old car back. Uh, Paul says when, when we desire when we desire and when we pursue money or we pursue things that cost money, we do stupid stuff. We fall into, into foolish and harmful desires that plunge us into ruin and destruction. I mean, this is serious stuff. Money problems is one of the top reasons for divorce in the wealthiest country in the world. That's crazy. Why do people cheat in business? Why do people cheat in sports and, and cheat in school? It's because they want to be successful. They want to move up. They want to get paid more. Social pressure and stress is one of the top reasons that people drink. And a lot of that comes from the, the, the stress and the pressure of being successful in, in money. And one of the top psychological patterns that men who view regularly pornography, uh, they display high anxiety and stress due to work and financial issues. Culture says that you need money to be happy, and that is a lie. And some of you are going to see that firsthand this summer as you travel with me and with, our, with the Fowlers and with uh, Kayla Newkirk to Zimbabwe, Honduras, and Kenya, these third world countries. Some of you will see that firsthand when you go to these places where they have nothing in comparison to us. And, and most of them are way more content in their life than we are. Andy Stanley, he said, awareness drives discontent. You are happy with the iPhone 3. But as soon as they announced the iPhone 4, your iPhone 3 was terrible. And so you wanted to get an iPhone 4. And then, as soon as they announced whatever was after the iPhone 4, 4S, and it had this lady named Siri who talks to you, and she's a little best friend in your pocket. You can pull out and talk to her whenever you want and ask about where you can go eat and all this stuff. You're like, oh my gosh, my iPhone 4 is terrible. 
And so you want this new iPhone 4S or whatever it was. Awareness drives discontent. Kent Hughes says, greed for Christians is irrational. It makes no sense at all. And the reason that it makes no sense is because when we have Jesus, we are guaranteed an inheritance that outweighs any earthly treasure. And we're guaranteed an inheritance that lasts forever. So while many would say, be content with what you have, the Bible very clearly says, be content with who you have. But go back to verse 10. Verse 10 Paul says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Notice what he says there. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. He says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And here's what that means. Money, if we don't love it, can be a powerful tool in spreading the gospel. Now, in verses 6 through 10, Paul's pretty clearly talking to people who have the desire or potentially would have the desire to get rich. Uh, But you speed up to verse 17 through 19, and you see that he kind of changes pace. And, And 17 through 19 is aimed at those who are already rich. And so look at what he says in verse 17. Verse 17, he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but instead to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. In this verse, Paul says two things. He kind of reiterates what he's already said in the first few verses to those who are not rich already. And the reason he reiterates it is because this stuff applies to poor people just as much as it applies to the rich people. First thing he says is don't be arrogant. The reason he says don't be arrogant is because that's where this false doctrine and this false theology comes from. And and oftentimes, people who are rich think that they're better than everybody else. Oftentimes, people who who are more well-off, they carry this attitude. You may not realize it, but it's there. For whatever reason, you think that you deserve what you got. And that arrogance gets us in a lot of trouble because what does good doctrinal hygiene begin with? Humility. Humility. Good doctrinal hygiene, good theological hygiene begins with the opposite of arrogance, which is humility. Then he goes on, he says, don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. There are no U-Hauls behind hearses. Jesus is the only thing that will last. He's reiterating what he's already already said, but then in verse 18, he, he adds something else in there for the people who are already rich. And listen to what he says. He says, command them to do good. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. A few years ago when I was in Minneapolis, I was in the airport at Minneapolis, and I was waiting to get on a plane to go to Africa. And I was with another group of people. And these, uh, these three guys walk up, okay? Big old burly dudes. They were, they'd been drinking a little bit. Uh, they were about to go on a trip, man trip together. And uh, the, the three of them were walking up, and the guy in the middle, as he's walking up, I see his shirt. He's wearing this black shirt, and on the black shirt, it's written, uh, Hooked on Phonics worked for me, but it's completely spelled wrong. You ever seen one of those shirts? It's an incredible shirt. Uh, anyways, I see the shirt, and as he's walking up, my, my first thought is, That shirt is awesome, and I'm gonna have to have that shirt. 
And so he keeps on walking and, and these three guys, they walk by and, and they see our group where obviously we got our, you know, crazy hiking backpacks and stuff. So they're like, where y'all going? This, this guy with the shirt on, he goes, where y'all going? And uh, he really wasn't asking to find out where we were going. He was asking because he wanted to tell us where he was going. But he, you know, we said, hey, we're going to, we're going to Africa. And normally when you tell somebody you're going to Africa, they're like, oh, no way, what are you going for? But he goes, oh, that's cool. I'm going to Canada. Uh, it's my birthday tomorrow. And uh, these guys are taking me for my birthday to Canada. Yeah, I'm going to Canada. And uh, we're gonna go hunt bears. And, and moose, moose is, and he kind of stumbles over that. He was a little bit, you know, drunk, like I said. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And he, he goes and sits down a few, uh, you know, a few seats down from us. And, uh, and I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm, again, my, my, eye, my mind is focused on the shirt. And so he's sitting over there and I just kind of am, every once in a while looking down at the shirt. And, and then one of those awkward moments where we made eye contact when we were absolutely not supposed to make eye contact. <laughs> and so I felt the need to say something at that point. And, uh, and I said, sup? And he goes, hey, man. And, and then it got really awkward. And so I was like, dude, I love your shirt. Which don't ever say that to a guy you don't know in a random airport. That's, that makes things really weird. And so I said, dude, I love your shirt. And he goes, thanks. And then I don't know what compelled me to do this, but I, saw, I was like, man, I got to have your shirt. And he's like, he's like, I know, right? And I'm like, no, seriously, I got to have your shirt. And uh, he kind of was like, huh, huh. And he looks at me, and then he looks at his shirt, and then he looks at me. And then in the middle of the airport, uh, he takes off his shirt. And he's not wearing anything under the shirt. Hairy chest, hairy shoulders, hairy back, everything. He takes it off, and he walks over, and he uh, sets it in my lap, and he goes back, and he sits down without this shirt on. We get on the plane, he was still sitting there without his shirt on. This dude didn't have a whole lot with him. He didn't have much. But what he had, he gave to me. Thankfully, he didn't give me everything. He just gave me the shirt. But <laughs> what he had, he gave me. And, and I'm telling you, it, it's, it's impacted my life, which sounds weird, but it's impacted my life. And, and honestly, it's impacted other people's lives because I've, I've shared the story a bunch when just talking to people, but also in sermons and, and other opportunities, Bible studies. But, but listen to this verse, 1 John 3, 16 through 18. This is how we know what love is. When you're in an airport and somebody asks for your shirt, give them your shirt. No, it doesn't say that. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Two of the biggest movements of the gospel that we see in all of scripture happen in Acts. Acts chapter two, you you see in verse 42 through 47, you see these people, they're gathering together a lot. They have this tight-knit community. And in there, it, it says, I'll read you. It says, verse 44, all the believers were together and they had everything in common, community. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need, And then you get down to verse 47, and and you know what it says? It says, and then the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Then you get to chapter 6. In chapter 6, you see something similar to that happen? 
You see a few times happen actually in between there, but chapter six, you see the leaders of the, of the church, of this early church, saw that the widows were being overlooked and the, and the widows were in need. And so they, they, they were not okay with that. They knew the widows needed to be looked after. Like we saw last week, we need to care uh, for the hurting, for the needy. Uh, we need family. We need community. And so these leaders led their group to select some more leaders to oversee that and make sure it happened. And the way that it was gonna happen is, they were gonna pull the community together and the community was gonna basically put a pot together to help provide for these widows. And you get to verse seven and listen to what it says. It says, so, or then, cause and effect situation here. The cause was them caring for their needs, them having this tight-knit community. And the effect was the word of God spread. It said the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests, the most religious people who did not believe in Jesus became obedient to the faith. So when you, when you, when you read what we've just read in, in chapter six, and we'll finish chapter six next week, Paul says two big things. He says, one, be content with not what you have, be content with who you have. And then secondly, he says, be generous with what you have. Be content with who you have. Be generous with what you have. And this second one is really huge, and let me tell you why. At the heart of community is generosity. Community is not only defined by by shared language and shared location and shared interests. Community is is, is defined by shared time and shared energy and shared ears and shared stuff. And in John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. When you act like this around each other, when you share this community, when you have this generosity amongst yourselves, other people are gonna see Jesus. People are gonna be pointed to him. I mean, since the beginning of the early church, one of the most powerful weapons that we have had in sharing the gospel is community which at the heart of community is what? Generosity. But let me tell you this. I think now this weapon of community is more powerful than ever before. And let me explain to you why. Your generation, uh, historically, this is fact, is the most connected generation that history has ever seen. Thank you to the internet. Thank you to Facebook, Twitter, social media. You are more connected than anybody else in history. I mean, you can know what's happening in in Pakistan in two seconds at the click of your finger. 10 seconds if your internet's slow. You can know what's happening on the other side of the world with the click of your finger. You can know what's happening with all of your other friends as they update their Twitter status, their Facebook status on their phone as they're walking to class. You are the most connected generation there has ever been in history. But the irony that comes with that is you have become and are quickly becoming, if not already become, the most isolated generation in all of history. Because even though you may have a thousand friends on Facebook, your generation is having less and less face-to-face audio-visual communication with people than ever before. You sit in your room, you click around on your mouse, and you look at pictures of people all day long, but you never carry on face-to-face conversations with these people that you supposedly know. And so in your mind, you think you have community. You think you're connected because you have a thousand friends on Facebook, but the reality is you are starving for community. 
I know that this is true of the people in this room. And knowing that it's true of the people in this room, even as we have community with each other, how much more true is it for the people on your campus? And when people are hungry, they will eat whatever is put in front of them, right? And that makes community a very powerful weapon, good or bad. And I guarantee you that we're not the only ones that realize community is powerful right now. The enemy knows it too. And so now we are engaging in this epic battle for people's hearts through this weapon of community. The thing is though, we, we have something that the enemy doesn't have. The reason that these people in Acts shared this tight-knit community that was so powerful and had such a huge impact in the gospel spread is because they had the Holy Spirit who, who unifies believers' hearts together. And as we're unified, and as we're not only content with who we have, but generous with what we have, this, this tool of community is absolutely unstoppable. But let me say this again. Community does not exist apart from being generous with what you have. If you didn't hear anything else I said tonight, hear this. Be content with who you have. You have Jesus. And be generous with what you have. Are you in love with your stuff? Or are you in love with Jesus? Are you content because you have these things that are temporarily satisfying your pleasure? Just like a, a, a lollipop temporarily satisfies your taste buds? Or are you content because you have Jesus? And are you generous with what you do have? 